Will you please pray with me? Now, O Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. You know, one of the great things about being a dad is that you get to embarrass your kids. My kids may not agree, but probably the dads in here would all agree with that. You know, you can tell their friends embarrassing stories from the past, the things they did, or you can pull out baby photos and artwork, perhaps, that they did in kindergarten. Or you can, of course, just be yourself, and that's generally enough, right? (laughs) But a surefire way to do it is to tell a joke. And not just any joke, but to tell a dad joke. Now, what do I mean by a dad joke? Well, the Oxford Dictionary actually defines a dad joke. And it says it is an unoriginal or unfunny joke of a type supposedly told by middle-aged or older men. Now, I dispute this, right? I don't think they're unfunny, obviously. But I am middle-aged, so I guess I fit the bill. So I have a classic dad joke to share with you today. And please humor me and participate in the culturally appropriate way. Knock, knock. Interrupting cow. Moo! (laughs) Awesome. I'm glad the dads at least laughed. (laughs) You know, I tell you a terrible dad joke, really, just as a way to ask you a question, which is this. I wonder, how do you handle interruptions in your life? When interruptions come along, how good are you at handling them? You know, from the more trivial, like a child butting into your conversation, which happens to me every single day, to the more traumatic, like an illness that you weren't expecting. You know, interruptions are unexpected. They're things we weren't hoping for on the course that we had plotted from point A to point B. And yes, there are good interruptions, but mostly I think we find them frustrating when they happen. They take up precious uh, precious time, they delay other projects or meetings that we have planned, and they distract us from our main goal. But what if the interruptions are actually more important than the plans that we have made? What if someone is trying to show us that his story is more important than the story that we have mapped out for ourselves? What if the interruptions are the path that we're meant to take? uh, take? Today, as we continue our way through Scripture, through the Old and New Testaments, looking at God's story in our sermon series, His Story, we come to a couple of beautiful interweaving stories. Two stories that reveal to us a great deal about who God is and what he wants for those he's made in his image. And at the very heart of this story is an interruption. And perhaps you might spot a couple more. So let's turn to our reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. I encourage you to get out the scripture sheet you were handed on the way in. Pull that out so you can follow along. And if you didn't grab one of those, you'll see it on the screen, or you can pull out your phones and use your Bible app. And the location for our story is what comes first. Verse 40. Here's the context of these interwoven stories. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And in order to discover where he's returning to, you have to look back in the chapter to see that he left Galilee and has gone across the lake to another region. Now, Galilee is a region in northern Israel. It's bounded on the south by the Jezreel Valley. It's to the north by the mountains of Lebanon and then to the east by the Sea of Galilee and the River uh, River Jordan, the Golan Heights, and to the west 
by the coastal mountain range. And I've been fortunate enough to go visit there. And it's a region that is characterized by this beautiful, lush landscape with agriculture, amazing natural landforms, and numerous rural villages. And it's an area that Jesus spent a great deal of time in. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that. He spent his youth mostly in Lower Galilee, And then his adulthood and preaching occurred, a lot of it, around the northwestern shores of the Sea of Galilee. Well, next, we we come to our story, story number one. And what we see is that it's the story, really, if you were to summarize it, it's the story of a desperate man. The story of a desperate man. And if we read the next few verses, you'll see why. Verses 41 and 42. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Now, I want you to see if you can put yourself in this man's shoes for a moment. Try and imagine what it was like to be him. This man has a young daughter. She's 12 years old. Maybe there are some 12-year-olds in this room. Some of you have kids that age. I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I kind of understand around that age. And, and she's his only daughter and possibly his only child. And now she's sick with some unknown ailment. And while we know that there were doctors back then, we discover that in our next story, and also we know that Luke himself, who's telling the story, was a physician, There was nowhere near the level of technology or sophistication or science that they could bring to the table when dealing with sick patients. And so even though this man was likely a person of comparative wealth and power, we know that because Luke tells us he was a synagogue ruler, so probably in a prominent position in any town, and even though he could have summoned a doctor to his home and probably has, he's probably spent money on all that, there's no guarantee that she would be saved. And in fact, she hasn't been. And so we have to accept that right now, this father is completely powerless to save his child. He's completely powerless. So he must have been afraid, afraid he's going to lose his only daughter and far, far too young. But then he hears about this man who's healed people of sicknesses such as fevers and paralysis, as well as a centurion servant who was at the point of death. And there's even some rumors around that he has raised a young boy from the dead. Well, besides his dignity, what else does he have to lose? And so he races off to find Jesus. He forces his way through the crowd, and then he finally gets to him, and he falls down on his feet, and he begs with Jesus. He begs that he will come to his home. His only daughter is dying, and Jesus is his last hope. And to his amazement, Jesus agrees. He agrees, and he begins to head in the direction of his home. You think, think about the relief that he must have felt at this stage. There was now a chance that she was going to be saved. Maybe she'll live after all. But, but, but then we have this major interruption. Did you notice that? And this must have been incredibly frustrating to Jairus. Times of the essence. Jesus is really close. There's no time to stop. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. And in verse 43, we're introduced to our second story. And it's the story not of a desperate man, but of a desperate woman in this case. Verse uh, 43 begins, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Here we have a woman who has been a social outcast 
for 12 long years. As one commentator puts it, because this complaint made her ceremonially unclean, look at Leviticus 15 for more on that, the sufferer was not permitted to take part in any temple worship or the like. Her uncleanness was readily communicable to other people. A touch was all that was needed. She would accordingly have been avoided, lest others contract from her an uncleanness, which, though temporary, was troublesome. Now, could you imagine living that way all the time, without any physical touch, with very little human interaction, for 12 years and no hope, it seems, of a cure? You know, many of us have experienced COVID quarantines. In fact, I know a few families right now in our congregation who are having those right now, either because they have COVID or because they have been in close contact with someone who's had COVID. And our family experienced it just last Christmas in 2020. And, you know, it's tough being cooped up cooped up, unable to go anywhere or see anyone, with everyone avoiding you during that time for right reason, right? Because they're worried about catching it themselves. And we did it for a whole two weeks. This woman has been avoided for 12 years. 12 years. Imagine that. But then hope appears. There are rumors of this man who can cure lepers. It's possible that he's healed withered hands. He's cast out demons, maybe. Could it be true? Is it possible? And so in a risky moment of boldness, motivated by desperation, she makes a furtive approach towards Jesus, probably in some form of disguise, so people don't recognize her, maybe with a cloak over her head, and secretly she touches Jesus. Just the very hem. Think about it. He may have been the first person that she's touched in 12 years. And then she realizes she has been healed. So now she thinks, I can quietly slip away and lead my life again. But no, Jesus knows that she's touched him, doesn't he? Verses 45 and 46, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? I don't think he said it with a demanding voice. I think he just asked, who was it who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Peter's going, come on, Jesus. How could we possibly know? But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I, know, I perceive that power has gone out from me. And at this stage, fear must have filled her mind. She's been exposed, right? This thing that she thought she was doing really secretly is known of. And she has to come forward. And so in verse 47, we read, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. But you know, Jesus isn't calling her forward to scold her like the religious leaders of the day would have done. No, he wants to affirm her faith. He wants to reassure her of her new identity in him and to show her this healing doesn't need to be kept secret. Verse 48, and Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Her faith has saved her. And she's a child of God. She's dearly loved by him. Imagine the joy that she must have felt in this moment. Not only is she healed, she's also accepted. Accepted by the one who loves her most. 
But as we then come back to story number one, I doubt that Jairus is feeling much joy at this stage. Even if this woman's been healed, this encounter, this interruption to Jesus' journey to his home has wasted precious time. And Jairus, as he likely feared, um, we then discover that this interaction with the bleeding woman has taken too much time. Verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And now you can imagine the emotions that must have immediately flooded into his very soul. There must have been pain and disappointment and even anger. If only they hadn't been interrupted. If only they could have gotten there sooner. Maybe you've experienced these kind of emotions with the death of a loved one. You would rush to be at their bedside before they died and you didn't make it quite in time. Or maybe you're just wondering why God didn't heal them. And these are really legitimate emotions to feel. But you know what? This isn't how this story is going to end. Jesus sees what's going on in Jairus. And he says in verse 50, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. He needs Jairus to have faith like the woman who just touched his robe. Faith will still save his daughter. And so Jairus musters up what faith he can. And they continue onwards towards his home. And when they get there, as you'd expect, they find everyone mourning her death. But Jesus simply says, do not weep, for she's not dead. She's sleeping. But clearly she's dead, right? She's dead. Otherwise, the professional mourners wouldn't have already been called out. So what does Jesus mean? Well, it's hard to know, but I like the way that one commentator tries to explain it. He says this, Jesus meant that in his presence and in virtue of his power, death loses its reality and is robbed of victory. Jesus meant that in his presence and in virtue of his power, death loses its reality and is robbed of victory. Jesus is the very son of God. And as such, he has power over life and death. And so even this seeming setback is not a setback to him. This earthly interruption is no setback. In fact, it's an opportunity to further reveal who he is and to grow the faith of Jairus and his family, to grow the faith of his disciples, to grow the faith of the onlookers who are now laughing at his response. And so unfazed, we read in verses 54 through 56, but taking her by the hand, Jesus called saying child arise and her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat and her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened once again like in the story of the desperate woman we see the power of touch and the love it reveals and in saying this it's not to dismiss the power of God that's going on right now But in touching this dead body, Jesus is once again breaking the Levitical laws and he's making himself unclean. But you see, Jesus isn't afraid to touch the untouchable. doesn't bring fear to him. After all, all of the ceremonial laws are fulfilled in him and now made obsolete. In touching the untouchable, he's actually making a statement about who he is. Firstly, he's God himself, but he's also revealing his very nature, his love for all mankind and his grace for all those who reach out to him. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are or what you wish you'd done. His love and his mercy are enough for you. But we also see not just the power of touch, but the power of faith. Now, Jairus' faith isn't perfect could certainly argue that. 
And perhaps it's not as strong as the woman that Jesus has just healed. But guess what? It's enough. It's enough to get him to the feet of Jesus, to put aside his social status and beg at the feet of a peasant. It's enough to get him to press on when people tell him, give up, she's dead, hope's at an end. And it's enough to help him overcome the unbelief of those who gathered at his home. You know, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says a person simply need to have faith like a grain of mustard seed and he can move mountains. A small amount of faith is all that Jesus wants us to have. And so there we have it. Two desperate people whose needs are met. Two incredible stories of faith and healing in improbable circumstances. But not how either person planned them, but how God wanted them to be. The woman wanted it to be a quiet affair. The man wanted it to be a quick one. But Jesus had other plans. Now, one of you in this church family who shall remain nameless, but you may know who it is, has a great tagline at the bottom of all your emails that simply says, man plans, God laughs. (laughs) Man plans, God laughs. And I know that's hard for the planners among you to swallow, right? Those of you who love to make planners, you know who you are. And if you don't, your spouse does, trust me. We don't like interruptions. We don't like deviations from the plan, but If we simply get frustrated by the interruptions, we may firstly miss what God's trying to do in others. And secondly, we miss what he's trying to do in us. Firstly, what he's doing in others. To love and serve others, you have to be willing to be interrupted. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. Jesus showed us that people are a priority over plans, and believers can model that even in the busyness of modern life. The late Henri Nouwen, someone I love to read, he's a priest and an author, he went so far as to suggest that interruptions were his real work. Interruptions were his real work. He wrote this, I remember an old priest who one day said to me, I have always been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted. Then I realized that the interruptions were my work. The unpleasant things, the hard moments, the unexpected setbacks carry more potential than we usually realize. And so Nowen made sure that he had plenty of room in his schedule for interruptions. And the lives that he touched, the vocation he fulfilled, and the enduring legacy that he left are a testimony to the fact that, as Annie Dillard writes, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And so on Jesus' way to heal Jairus' ailing daughter, a woman who happened to touch the hem of Jesus' robe interrupted him. And because he embraced this, he was able to change her life forever. Don't miss the work God is trying to do through you in the lives of others through the interruptions that he sends your way. And secondly, don't miss what he's trying to do in you. Because as one person put it, when the world, or what the world calls interruptions, become in moments of grace epiphanies that lead us to the heart and mind of God. When we ignore what's being sent our way, we likely miss what God is revealing to us. Now, I wonder if you've, you probably have, I hope you have, <laughs> have you ever looked closely at your passenger side mirror? 
right? Hopefully you have if you're a driver anyway, right? I hope so. Sometimes I doubt it in South Carolina. But what does it say on the passenger mirror? Objects in the mirror appear are closer than they appear, right? And the late great, sadly, this, of this weekend, Meatloaf wrote a fantastic song about that, right? If any of you remember that. But this mundane phrase is actually really helpful to us as we think about it. So it is with the presence of God. In the interruptions that are in your life, take a closer look at what you see, listen to what you hear, feel what you touch you just might find God in that moment, in that person who interrupted your plans or that disease that you weren't expecting or maybe that argument or conflict that was never supposed to happen or perhaps in that unexpected bill that you couldn't afford to pay or maybe in the action of that child or your child that has knocked you sideways. The list could go on. What's God doing that you are missing because of your frustration and anger at being interrupted. And heed the advice that we were all given as kids when our journeys were interrupted by a road. Stop, look, and listen. Stop, look, and listen. And finally, whatever it is you're encountering, put your faith in Jesus. He can rescue you in even the darkest of situations. He can heal the sick. He can heal the blind. He can set captives free. He can do all these things. He can even raise the dead. And it only takes faith the size of a mustard seed to see this happen. And as Jairus discovered, it may not come exactly how you were planning it, but it'll be exactly the way that you needed it to happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to live with interruptions in our lives differently, to not see them as annoyances or nuisances, but to have our eyes wide open, at least our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears, to see and hear what you are doing in our lives. Why have you sent that thing across our path? Why is that happening? Is it for the sake of someone else to come to know and love you or for us to come and know and love you? Help us to be listening, that we might be open to those things, that your kingdom might be glorified and that others might to come to know you. We pray us in Jesus' name. Amen.